Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World, with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever-evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic, food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Greetings from the Sunshine State. Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Let me pose this question. How far would you go to win the heart of someone you love? Would you go as far as to inventing a new product? Well, joining us with our first segment is Samuel Taylor, who has a great story to tell about how he won the heart of someone he loved and the founding story of Long Table Pancakes. Sam, welcome to the show. Hello, it's nice uh, nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us the story of the founding of Long Ta- Table Pancakes and what inspired you to start the company. Well, I really came in the side door in every possible way into business and food. I, uh, I was working with an acrobat years and years ago and I uh, was falling for her and uh, we were biking 10 miles down into rehearsals where we were standing on each other's shoulders and doing all sorts of things in the air and riding a six-foot unicycle and uh, food was a real concern it was we had to have real food and uh, I was also desperate to have her over to my house for any possible reason that I could cook up and um, <clears throat> acrobats are they're working in the dinner hour so I thought how about breakfast and I, I kind of went off the deep end and I, I, I started making pancakes five days a week and inviting her over to try the best ones. And uh, the best ones, it turns out, were made out of popcorn. And, um, you know, it was, it was not a transactional pancakes for wife experience, but um, we did give out pancakes at our wedding. It was enough a part of our love story that that, that felt right to us. And then uh, we started a farmer's market stand to, to sell the pancakes. And then it, it only got stranger from there. I'm, I'm sure it did. So one of the really unique things about long table pancakes is your commitment to using 100% heirloom grains. Can you explain to our audience what an heirloom grain is and why you chose to focus on them? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, Heirloom grains are the kinds of grains that your great-great-great-parents, great-great-grandparents ate. Um, they are not the kind of super hybridized grains that, that mostly are grown these days. Um, they are saved from seed from generation to generation. They are descendants of ancient grains and a lot of wild grasses and stuff before that, which is in pretty sharp contrast to how most grains are grown right now. And, and most grains are grown right now, you know, a university will fund a project to... Um, to increase yield, say, on a particular grain, and whether they genetically modify it or whether they super hybridize it, you know, generation after generation on on fast forward in a lab, the real concern for that kind of industry is is yield um, and how many bushels per acre can you get. Whereas heirloom grains are not engineered that way. They're sort of wild creatures. They have a lot of personality. They have a lot of flavor. Um, and they, they generally don't yield as well. So they generally tend to cost a little bit more. Um, but the, they tend to be a much higher nutrition profile, um, and much, much more variety and depth of flavor. And which, um, grains are you working with now? 
Oh gosh, a dozen. Um, we're working with an heirloom oat flour. We use a couple of different varieties of heirloom wheat. We use buckwheat. Um, we use a dark Danko rye. We have used uh, turkey red. We have used spelt. We have used Kernza, which is an interesting sort of case study and is not strictly speaking an heirloom grain, but is, is fascinating nonetheless. Um, and we, we've also got a short run series where we work with individual farmers and one particular grain telling one farmer's story and the story of one grain. Um, so, you know, there's, there's just such a, a deck of cards of, of flavors and textures that you can get out of these grains, which, which sort of beats the pants off of, uh, you know, industrial white flour. So you've, you've politely stepped into my next question. <laughs> we've, we've talked about regenerative farming in the past. Now, all of your grains come from, or I wouldn't say maybe not all of them, but you work with regenerative farmers. For listeners who might not be familiar, what is your definition of regenerative agriculture and why is it important to you? That's such a great and such an important question. Um, not what it means to me, but what it is and, and what it means for the world. Um, broadly speaking, Regenerative agriculture is any way of farming, and, and it's a big tent, which is a good thing, any way of farming, which captures carbon and improves soil health. Um, this is in real contrast to how so many uh, acres are farmed these days, which is, you know, there's, there's an analogy that a, a farmer named Willie Hughes gave to me, which, which makes a lot of sense to me. Regenerative agriculture sets up a flywheel. You put one thing in motion and improve something else. Maybe, maybe the what one thing that you're planting in the soil is helping to suppress weeds. It's also capturing carbon because you don't have to because that's suppressing those weeds. Then you don't have to use pesticides because you're not using pesticides. You've got a healthier soil sort of biome, and because you've got a healthier soil biome, your yield is increasing. Um, whereas the traditional model of agriculture is a gas tank. You know, the soil is empty of nutrients, so you pour nutrients in in the form of fertilizer and the plants take it up and uh, the tank is empty again and you pour more gas in. And as it turns out, uh, you know, we fed the world that way. It was, it was huge advances in terms of yield. We got that way um, in sort of folks who are in my grandparents' generation now um, and they loved it. And the problem is they just didn't live long enough to see some of the negative consequences of that way of farming. They didn't long, live long enough to see the the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico or the hor the real, real bad problems with erosion or anything that happens when you get away from a system which naturally improves itself. And, and it's time, the reason I think it's so important is that if we don't course correct on how we farm, um, we're going to be handing down real real serious problems to the next generations. And we have an opportunity with regenerative agriculture to actually undo some of the harm that prior generations unknowingly did. And, and that's so rare, you know, we so often we're just trying to mitigate the effects of climate change or mitigate the damage that an industry does. And the unique promise of regenerative agriculture is that it actually improves the land and it improves the ability of the land to heal and to capture carbon. Um, and the really exciting thing about that promise is that while it took 150 years to do all that damage, it really doesn't take that long to take any given uh, piece of land and flip it back in the right direction. Um, you know, it takes much yeah, less time. Um, this, is, this is great. And I want to take that nugget that you just presented. And I read something um, that you're involved in the Artisan Grain Collaborative. So how do you take 
the model of what you created with a product at the center and then in little spokes around it, you have these regenerative farms. How do you take that model and transport it to other locations and other similar businesses? Um, because regenerative farming on its own, I, I think needs kind of kind of some ballast, something to really make it, you know, worth not worthwhile, but you know, become a commercial opportunity. Have you thought about kind of going to other regions and, you know, taking that model and transporting it? Sure. Um, you know, we got our hands full right now with just growing the business as it is. We, you know, a year ago we were one person business and then, uh, this year we've seen some really explosive growth and we're, we're four people full time and we're, we're racing as fast as we can to keep up. <laughs> um, so in some ways going to other regions is, is a little bit down the road for us. Um, and is, is some of the work that other folks in similar groups are doing like the artisan grain collaborative. Um, there are sort of sister groups, you know, the artisan grain collaborative is a, a group of farmers, distillers, millers, bakers, everyone in the grain chain, um, working to, promote a, a regenerative grain shed in the upper Midwest. And there are other groups around the country doing similar things in different regions. But, you know, to your point about people don't buy regenerative agriculture, they buy food <laughs> and they buy, buy food because it's delicious. Um, and I think keeping sight of that fact that, that the customer wants to buy food that's going to taste good and do right by their family um, and really creating those products um, rather than trying to to ram a story down their throats about, um, about the farm that you're working with. It's sort of food first and farming second. Um, even though in my heart, there's, there's a part of me for which the food is, is all a front for my agricultural reform agenda. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So I would imagine in the beginning, when you first started, you know, long table pancakes, um, you probably had to kind of do a lot of, uh, out there searching for the right farms to work with. And now, probably it's a mix of you finding farms and them finding you. What criteria do you use to partner with the right farms? That's a great question. You know, I didn't start seeking out these farmers back when I was just, you know, long before I started a business, long before I even thought of starting a business. Um, I was just making pancakes for me and somebody I wanted to woo. And it turns out that the, the things that tasted best happened to come from these oddball farms who were growing things in these weird ways and growing heirloom grains. They just tasted better. It's just more flavor. Um, and so I was working farmer's markets and met a kind of network of kind of radical farmers through those farmer's markets that I worked in Chicago. And that was how I got introduced to so many people. And it's really a community. Um, the thing I think people don't understand is that farmers want to do this kind of work. They want to grow things in this way. And there's a ton of them who are just chomping at the bit to do it and they're tired of the old way of doing it. Um, but in order for them to do it, they need a market for it. They can't grow what they can't sell. They can't afford to, they'll lose their land. Mm -hmm. And so for me, really it's, it's about tapping into communities of people who know one another and can introduce you to another person. Um, because a lot of these farmers are, you know, they've been kind of on the fringes. If they've been doing this for more than about five, 10 years, they're kind of on the fringes and they've gotten to know each other. You know, you notice when you drive through central Illinois and somebody's farming very differently from the corn and soy next door. Um, and so, and so those people have, uh, have really introduced me to, to a big group of people that is just ready to do a new thing. 
um, as far as what criteria we use to, to evaluate them, we really get to know the farm, you know, we get to know what they're doing and why they're doing it that way. Um, because there's so many very different ways of farming in this beautiful regenerative way. Um, there's a lot of different things that are suited to the unique characteristics of, of their land. And I think if, if you speak to farmers about their work, um, there is a, there is a passion and an interest, um, that a certain type of farmer takes in the effect that they have on their land. Um, that is, is not subtle. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. very easy to understand when you're dealing with a farmer who's, who's basically doing the kind of work that we want to support. So I, I do have a couple of questions I want to squeeze in, but before yeah. we get to that, why don't you tell our audience how they can obtain long table pancake mixes? Yeah, sure. Well, we're at longtablepancakes.com. It's probably the easiest way to do it. We have also recently launched on Amazon. Um, we are in about 20 locations in and around Chicago and a handful scattered elsewhere. And later this November, we will be launching in all 70 fresh times. If you have one of those near you. I guess the question that I wanted to know the most is, have you thought, given your background in the theater, about putting Shakespearean quotes on your bag? And if so, which one? <laughs> You know, I have thought about it and I have never done it. Um, the thing about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare, all of his quotes are so complex and spiky. And if you take one out of context, you can say anything you want. And if you start to look at the context, they all get very strange very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I can uh, we, actually, we actually used to have sort of farcical names for our flavors that were taken from some of the experiences that I had in the theater. I was playing a character called the White Knight. And one of our, uh, when I was trying to woo Lindsay, who's the acrobat, and that used to be the, the title for one of our products. And it turns out nobody understood what it was at all. So we changed it to something that made sense, which is popcorn. If you want to know more about Sam Taylor and you want to know more about Long Table Pancakes, I suggest you go to YouTube and you look up Long Table Pancakes and Shark Tank. And you can see Sam Taylor in the flesh. And you can learn about whether or not he got money, but he did get some advice. And that is up your social media game, which I can tell you he certainly has. I'd like to thank Sam Taylor for being our guest today. Uh, uh, just a wonderful conversation. I urge you to go out and try some long table pancakes. Thanks, Sam. We'll be back with more after these messages. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In What Goes Up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper, and just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, 
Writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. I'd like to thank Sam Taylor from Long Table Pancakes, for joining us and making us hungry and being able to eat pancakes that are much healthier. So let me pose a question. What if using new technology, you were able to eat a bag of Cheetos without any guilt? Sounds good, right? Well, our next guest is CEO of Ayana Bio, Frank Jackish. And I saw Uh, a survey that was sent to me the other day that just said, okay, I have to find out more about this, about people who would be willing to pay more for healthier, ultra-processed food. So that means um, you can eat the things that you thought were ultra-processed and perhaps beyond your health needs um, with the advent of something called bioactive. So we're going to have Frank join us. Frank, welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. Thanks, Alan. Uh, Thanks for having me today. So the survey results show that most consumers are willing to pay more for healthier, ultra-processed foods. How do you see this insight impacting the future of food innovation at Ayana Bio? Well, it's it's very it's very helpful for us. Um, I mean, our my our expectation and part of the reason I guess why we did the survey was to to figure out what what people thought about that. But we're we're really trying to drive cost effective, you know, solving the cost problem to to make these types of foods uh, keep them affordable, uh, which is why most people reach for them in the first place. Aside from the fact that they, you know, make great sense on a Sunday afternoon when you're watching football and, and drinking beer. Right. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about the plant cell technology that is used in, in creating bioactives, because I'm sure that's something not familiar to most people. So, yeah, it's it's a new area. I mean, we're a, a two-year-old startup, so it's an emerging area, but it's also not the, tech, the the idea of plant cell culture is not new. It's been around for a while. It's just it wasn't really feasible as a, as a mechanism, as a means of basically producing stuff. And, and you, that's that's why we exist. We're, we're aiming to essentially solve that um, at Antibio. But Essentially, the the summary of what we do is we, I mean, we grow plants without growing plants in the ground. And and by that, I mean, we use plant cell cultivation rather than agriculture to essentially make plants and the bioactives that are contained in those plants. So I guess in order to make this successful in the long run, you really have to inject yourself into the you know the process from you know uh farm to table so to speak mm-hmm. is that going to be a difficult thing for for companies let's just say like frito-lay 
um, they have to kind of reinvent their uh, operations. Um, is that something significant that's going to take time and investment? How do you see that, you know, coming to, to light? Well, I think that's that's where I see IANA sort of solving that problem. I mean, they need companies like IANA to, to solve those types of problems, to make these ingredients um, at a scale and at a cost that makes it affordable for them to have this as a tool that they can use to, to create their products. So, I, I mean, I view IANA as a solution provider mm-hmm. um, in, in being able to solve for that. I mean, it's Yes, if, if people are willing to pay more for the for healthier foods, that's that's one you know nice point that we got out of the survey. But at the end of the day, you know, the food companies still have to have access to tools that allow them to to create the products and keep them in the affordable range that that people expect, basically. So let let's drill down into that. So let's say I have a bag of potato chips in front of me um, before implementing IANA Bio's um, technology and one afterwards, what would the nutrition look like, the difference? So the, what we're looking at um, is essentially the, the bioact, the plant bioactives are, are, is that nutritional value that's contained in, and that could be anything from fruits, vegetables, um, plants themselves, botanicals, um, that nutrient value that's in the plant is what is referred to as bioactives. And the bioactives in plants, um, and it could be anything from uh, amino acids to vitamins to you know specific compounds that are in there that some people will know have health benefits to them, right? Let's take broccoli as an example. I mean, most people generally know that broccoli is is good for them. Um, but maybe like a lot of other families, I have trouble getting my kids to eat broccoli because they hate it. So, I mean, for me, if I had a source of uh, a food that contained a full serving of broccoli without them having to, you know, suffer me trying to get them to eat broccoli uh, that, that we're putting on the table, that would be that would be great. I would love that. Um, and again, like I was saying earlier, is that there's there's a lot of I mean there's a lot high level of awareness that there's something like broccoli is has health benefits and and people generally sort of know that hey I I should eat broccoli it's good for me um, and they might not necessarily know why but it's the bioactives that are in broccoli there, there's a set of compounds in there called glucosinolates uh, there's one compound called sulforaphane uh, that is a glucosinolate that's contained in there that is largely sort of responsible for delivering the, the health beneficial effects of, of broccoli. But adding that, consistently delivering or adding that to say a processed food would be difficult to do um, if you had to rely on material that came from agriculture. Uh, and that's that's sort of where we see ourselves sort of fitting into the equation here is that if we can make plant cell broccoli and we could consistently deliver those 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 health beneficial bioactives that that you know people sort of expect, and the companies that would engineer those products would need to expect. Then it would allow them to use uh, have a, a cost effective way of say engineering broccoli into potato chips or Cheetos or mac macaroni and cheese or whatever it might be, so that you could use that now as a tool to put into those types of foods. Just to add some clarity to put a fine point on this, 
is it a replacement for the typical agricultural products or is it an additive? That's a good question. Um, we don't tend to, uh, our goal is not to replace agriculture. Uh, we are trying to sort of, you know, build, because we're not trying to replace food at the produce stand. I'm not trying to replace broccoli at the produce stand. I'm not trying to replace blueberries at the produce stand. We're trying to create in, uh, ingredients using this plant cell technology that we're developing that could be now used to be integrate the, the benefits of say blueberries or, or, uh, or broccoli into products that people are reaching for if they're not going to the produce stand. So I watched a video in which you delivered a, a presentation. Um, at the end of your presentation, you you uh, steered people toward some samples that you had. It was, I think, two different beverages. One was made with lemon balm. The other, I don't exactly remember. Um, right, right. So what did people what did people say? Uh, what was the reaction that you got from these trials? So we we launched the, those first two ingredients at an event, and you saw the video of me speaking at the event about what we're doing at IonaBio. And at the end of that presentation, we served some uh, drinks at the event to the attendees of the event that showcased the plant cell lemon balm and the plant cell echinacea in two different sort of mocktail, if you will, they, um, that that people could try that that were there. So they weren't. We weren't designing them as actual consumer products, but actually just sort of a prototype of something on how you could use right. these ingredients. So that we we wanted to make them available so people could try them, and they the response was fantastic. I mean, there was there was a huge line of people waiting to to order these things after when they opened up the you know the bar when they started serving the cocktails. I was uh, we were surprised by the reception that there were that many people that wanted to get in line to to. To get these things as quickly as the as that the talk had ended there it was great so before we move on to some of the other things that i picked out of that that conversation um a lot of companies that are in the alternative protein space for example are are finding that enabled to um do production at a scalable level the costs are enormous are you facing that same challenge so uh, we've we've done part part of what I've been doing, um, you know, when we've been working on extensively over the past at least a year now um, is, you know, really building uh, uh, models to essentially understand uh, the that that economics, and you know, we're pretty comfortable with, and we believe we're going to be able to be competitive uh, once we get to scale. We're going to be competitive not only with stuff that's in the market, but also we think we're going to be able to all get get competitive with agriculture. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so um, I think it was one of the early slides in that presentation. You, you talked about sustainability and ethical challenges. So how is that kind of part of your mission statement? It's, it's a big piece of it um, because, the, look, the reality is that um, making stuff based on plants that are grown in the ground, especially if you're trying to deliver the nutritional benefits, the, those bioactives that, that we've been talking about. 
it's it's very difficult to do that. And that's just based on my you know 25 years of experience in that space and, and dealing with it. But relying on stuff that's grown in the ground is very difficult to do and to consistently deliver the health benefits that are expected or those bioactives that are expected is it's it's very difficult to do that relying on agriculture. So um, what we want to do with plant cell is we and we know we can do this with plant cell is we can more consistently deliver those health beneficial bioactives in plant cell derived forms of these ingredients than you could ever get it with with um, agricultural derived material. One of the other things that I think is interesting when I look at um, plant cell technology is not only can it replace some existing pieces of the puzzle, it can actually create products that are healthier. So mm -hmm. are there health benefits that um, bioactives can deliver that you just can't achieve through traditional means? Yes, definitely. Um, we that that's a, I think a big driver of of why we're going this way with this. Um, but I mean, look if you look at the re, the reality is that um, you know, and, and this is based on some recent published data. But you know, more more people will die from poor nutrition in in twenty twenty three in twenty twenty four than than smoking, um, and that's an interesting fact and. And, and the, one of the problems is that in, in that is that if you look at the the reality is that most people probably want to eat fresh food. I think a lot of people would love to integrate fresh food in their diet, but the reality is most families can't afford fresh food, and they have to reach for processed foods to be able to to put calories on the table. And so they're the the people are reaching for calories, and the, a lot of the calories that people are reaching for today are absent nutrition and that nutrient that that poor nutrition problem we have isn't necessarily because of an ab, ac, not access not because of uh, access to calories it's because the calories that they're consuming lack nutrition and oh, and that's the type of problem that we were are, are essentially trying to solve and it was one of the drivers as to why we did this ultra processed food survey as well and that um the, the way to fix the problem is by trying to to create these types of tools that will allow food companies to put that nutrient density back into these types of products that currently don't have any any nutrient density in it other than calories essentially speaking of the survey were you surprised by the findings i was definitely surprised by i wasn't expecting people to uh, be willing to pay more and I definitely wasn't expecting that there would be a, a pretty good group of people that was willing to pay up to $3 more. Uh, that was a surprise for sure. Interesting. So I would imagine because your, your product is aimed at CPG companies, ha have you been in contact? I mean, how receptive have they been uh, as part of your journey? Well, we're still fairly early, but um, we have been having those conversations pretty consistently now over the past year. Um, we're, we're getting meetings with those large CPG companies and they, I think they're, you know, very much looking at this as a, as a potential tool, even though it's early, the fact that they're disengaged as early as we are with it um, is very exciting for, for Ayana. Interesting. So, um, 
beyond adding um, bioactives to CPG products, uh, where are the other opportunities? I mean, does this work in dairy products? Does this work in, you know, poultry, meat? I mean, what are the other categories or applications you can kind of expand to? Well, we're we're primarily going to focus just on the the that you know really on the plant cell uh, cultivation side of things, and that those if we can make those uh, those types of ingredients using plant cell, it will apply across a wide range of of different markets. So it'll we can look at food companies, we can look at beverage, we can look at dietary supplement, we can look at sports nutrition, and and some and to some extent we can even look at skincare. Uh, in cosmetic as well, um, all of those ingredients could be used across you know a wide range of different product types um, in in the CPG world. So, does the CPG world you know represent essentially a white space um, in terms of of the future of plant cell technology? Um, a lot of other markets are extremely crowded. We're seeing companies kind of fall by the wayside and mergers. Um, does that present, you know, a pretty good white space for you folks? It does present, it's, it presents a tremendous white space for us. I mean, the most of these companies, uh, more and more companies want to integrate um, natural and they want to integrate plants into their story in some way. And right now it's not easy for them to do that. And there are a lot of things that there are some great clinical studies coming out showing the the health benefits of of many of these these plants or the plant bioactives and the one I'll give you an example of which is fairly recent is is cacao it's chocolate basically and there was a study that was published about 2 years ago now called the Cosmos study which was a joint study between Mars and and NIH that demonstrated that 500 milligrams of cacao polyphenols, that's the bioactives in chocolate, um, essentially demonstrated, and it was probably the largest ever randomized trial that, that may have ever been done on a natural product. And it showed that 500 milligrams of these cacao polyphenols gave a very significant health benefit for sort of two areas. One was for cardiovascular, for heart health, and the other one was for cognition or for, uh, for brain health. Um, the problem is that, and, and by the way, this sort of validates what a lot of people did know is, I mean, most people sort of viewed chocolate as healthy. Now, of course, you have to eat uh, that very dark, very high concentration dark chocolate to really get those types of benefits. I mean, or eating milk chocolate with a lot of sugar and it isn't necessarily going to deliver that promise on that promise. Uh, but 500 milligrams of, of those if you wanted to follow in line with what the clinical study showed, it would be very expensive to add 500 milligrams of cacao derived polyphenols to products to deliver the promise of that fantastic clinical trial. Um, so cacao is never going to be a sustainable biomass for delivering that. And that that's exactly the an example of something that we have our eyes on. If we could make plant cell derived cacao that contain those same very high levels of those same health beneficial bioactives, those cacao polyphenols, that's something that, that, that is what is going to sort of untap it. It, it would, we can make it affordable now to add the, ben, the health benefit of cacao into 
food products, for for example. Amazing. I'd love to hear more about that, but we are out of time, unfortunately. So we'll save that for a future discussion to hear about next steps. I would love to thank my guest, Frank Jackish, CEO of Ayana Bio. Hope to have him on again so we can hear more about the company's progress. We'll be back after this message. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In What Goes Up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. First, I'd like to thank Frank Jackish, uh, CEO of Ayana Bio, for his uh, interesting insights into the future of how CPG companies can create healthier food. Now, if you're like me and you went to college in the dark ages and the cafeteria served mystery meat and powdered eggs, you have to wonder what if they were able to adhere to more flexible dietary needs like being vegan, for example. Well, our next guest has the answer and solution to that. I'd like to welcome to the show, Katie Cantrell, co-founder and CEO of Greener by Default. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Alan. Absolutely. So let's start off with an overview of Greener by Default's mission and particularly how it uses behavioral science to promote sustainable plant-based choices. Yes. So that is our mission as an organization. We are a nonprofit and we consult with institutions, mostly hospitals, corporations, universities, and events in order to apply behavioral science to food policy to help nudge diners towards more sustainable, healthy plant-based foods. So our ultimate goal is to shift the norm in institutional food service. Right now, just about everywhere meat is the default and people have to specially opt in to plant-based options, which usually only strict vegetarians and vegans bother to do. 
we're trying to make plant-based the default and give people the choice to opt into meat and dairy. So this preserves freedom of choice for everyone, but it encourages um, more people to consider choosing the sustainable plant-based options. If I had a dollar for every event that I've been to in the last 10 years that I've been a vegan, where I have to ask the server at an event or a party, um, hey, do you have a vegan option? And they'll like go back to the kitchen and maybe take something off the plate and give me, you know, the garnishes, for example. And, and I think this is just absolutely fantastic. So tell us a little bit more about the behavioral science part of this. Yes, yeah, so our work is based on behavioral economics. We are especially inspired by the book Nudge, which is kind of a seminal work by um, Cass Sunstein, a Harvard professor, and Richard Thaler, who's a Nobel laureate. And they look at the profound impact of defaults uh, on human behavior. So defaults are the option we end up with if we don't make an active choice. So for instance, I still have the default ringtone that my cell phone came with because I simply never bothered to go in and change it. And people have a very strong tendency to stick with the default or the status quo option, partly because it's easier, it's just one less decision to make, and partly because we have this subconscious assumption that if most people around us are doing something, it must be the right thing to do. And as social creatures, we like to fit in, and sticking with the default is the surest way to do that. You know, that's what most other people will be doing. Interesting. So while you're doing this how do you respect individual freedom of choice i mean vegans and vegetarians only make up a relatively smaller part of the population um yes. how, how do you respect that choice yeah it's a great question and you know the work we're doing really involves a paradigm shift outside of this notion that vegetarian food is just for vegetarians so i can give you a, an example to, so you'll see both how it works and how it's inclusive you know at events usually the default is meat and there's maybe a box to check to request a special vegan meal you know just like you were saying it's often really an afterthought if it's included at all so we've actually done studies, um, my co-founder Alana Braverman led uh, studies at Harvard, UCLA, some other universities looking at events. So in the default condition, just like it usually is, you know, when people RSVP to the event, they got a meat meal um, unless they requested a plant-based meal. And what they found was about 20% of people requested a plant-based meal, 80% elected to stick with that meat default. Um, this was on college campuses, so 20% is higher than we would see in the general public in terms of people who go out of their way to request a plant-based meal. Then for the study, they flipped it. They made plant-based the default and they gave people the choice to request a meat meal. And so what they found was that about a third of people did request a meat meal, but about 70% of people, um, almost 70% stuck with that plant-based default. So that's a 50 percentage point increase in the number of people eating plant-based foods simply by making it the default. And it's a perfect example of our target audience because, you know, we are not working for vegetarians and vegans. We are really focused on flexitarians. And so what this study showed is, you know, about 20% of people, they were the vegans and vegetarians. About 30% or so was, you know, hardcore meat lovers who want meat every meal, every day. But 50% of people are these flexitarians who aren't going to go out of their way to request a plant-based meal, but they're perfectly happy to stick with it when it's the norm. And so that's really what our work is focused on. Okay. So um, you consult and you advise. So 
I don't know how far into the process your work goes, but to me, it sounds like a lot of the success is on the um, receiving end, the institution, the college, the hospital, um, whoever is, is making these choices. And I would imagine that a really key element to success is messaging. So, you know, telling a, a college student who might not even know what a plant-based meal is, how do you get that messaging across? How do you put it on a menu? Um, what role do you play in that? Or what role does your client play in that? Yeah, so, you know, it's an interesting and kind of tricky subject. It's a very fine line. And because often people have negative associations with plant-based, vegetarian, vegan, meatless, either they think it doesn't taste good or they think it's less indulgent or they think, oh, that's just for vegans. If I'm not a vegan, that vegan option isn't for me. And so what we advise, which is really backed up by a large body of research, is really just focusing on the flavors, letting the ingredients in the dish speak for themselves. So one of the behavioral science strategies, the very low-hanging fruit that's easy to do is like, instead of calling it vegan enchiladas, call it slow roasted sweet potato and black bean enchiladas. Just leading with the flavors and the ingredients, that then makes it seem more familiar to diners. They, it's, it's less scary and it, it seems like something that they might choose. So, you know, education is absolutely important, but we found that you know, at, at the point of sale or right when people are about to choose food, they're thinking about what makes their mouth water. What do they love? What are they craving? What's going to set, you know, satiate them? That's not really the time to talk about sustainability or carbon footprint. That actually doesn't have much of an impact. Um, like carbon labeling or labeling things healthy also deters people from choosing them. So when working on menus and food descriptions, we really lead with flavor. Now, I noticed in watching um, some of the videos from your company, your client often is the like in a, in a hospital setting, the person in charge of, of nutrition for patients. Um, tell me a little bit about how that works since, you know, a lot of patients are on very specific diets. Who helps them, you know, make these decisions? Do does I mean, is the person in charge of dietary your best friend here or does it go directly to the patient, him or herself? It depends on the healthcare system. So we worked with New York City Health and Hospitals, Sodexo and Mayor Eric Adams office to implement plant-based defaults in all 11 public New York City hospitals. We piloted it first for lunches. And um, what they elected to do was just to pilot it for patients who were on general diets. So, you know, not renal patients or diabetic patients or, you know, patients on liquid diets. Um, but about 50% of their patient population is just on the general diet. And so to keep things simple, it was focused on that. Um, they are now working on developing plant-based recipes that meet more of those special dietary needs, but such a huge shift can, can take place just when focusing on patients who are on that general diet. And um, in New York City Health and Hospitals, both their, um, their lead dietitian and their culinary director were absolutely key to the success of the program and so enthusiastic and really took it on. And they've been really wonderful um, stewards of the concept too. Now they're, they're speaking at conferences and things about it. So, you know, most of the time when we encounter dietitians, they 
are familiar with the benefits of plant-based foods and may have some logistical questions, but they are generally speaking allies. Okay, so you very politely walked into my next question. So there are, you know, people involved in the process, uh, one of whom is, you know, the people in the commissary who are actually creating uh, these products. So I would imagine that a lot of them are not super experienced at making, um, you know, healthy plant-based products or vegan products. And you don't bring in third parties to cook for them, but perhaps do you bring in like local farms or special purveyors of special products, like maybe a vegan cheese or vegan burgers? How, how do you manage that process with the kitchen, suppliers, and so on? Yeah, so we do sometimes bring in third parties to help with culinary development. It's usually Forward Food, which is a program of the Humane Society of the United States. They have a really fantastic recipe database that's divided by K-12 university and healthcare. So if we're working with institutions that need to add new plant-based items to the menu and they don't have the capacity to develop that in-house, then we direct them to that resource. And they do have training videos that are available as well. So that's immensely helpful. In terms of supply chains, that does get a little complicated, but you know, we really work with the institutions to look at the types of foods they're already serving and they're already familiar with and seeing if we can just augment those to make them more plant-based and also looking at the dishes that are you know most popular with diners. So for instance, we worked with LinkedIn San Francisco office and that's a pretty health conscious audience and very diverse. And so international foods perform very well there. You know, Latin flavors, um, Indian flavors were very popular. And so their culinary director loves to um, just play around with new recipes and read new cookbooks. And so she did a phenomenal job of just drawing inspiration from international cuisines that were already plant forward. You know, you're not going to think twice if you see a, a lemongrass tofu banh mi or, you know, again, the, the like black bean tostadas. So that can help with culinary professionals too, emphasizing that these aren't entirely new products or new techniques, but really just bringing those same culinary techniques to bear in terms of really maximizing flavor and looking at, you know, caramelizing or putting in some fermented foods, just getting creative and making sure that they're layering those flavors and drawing upon appealing ingredients that they know that their diners already like. Interesting. So I, I guess as we're talking here, it makes me wonder about, you know, some of the underserved markets that you would be able to make a dramatic impact in. So I can think of two right off the top of my head. One are airlines. I mean, the last time I got a good vegan meal on an airline was, well, never. And then caterers. You know, I was just at an event this past weekend, and the catering meal for vegan was a big plate of spaghetti. And to be honest with you, I'm diabetic. I can't eat a big plate of spaghetti. And if they knew that there were other options or had recipes or guidance, it would make a difference. So is that beyond your reach, beyond your vision, or do you see an opportunity there? Absolutely. And you know, that's something that comes up a lot is airlines because I, it's, it's perfect for it. You have a captive audience and the way that there, if there are vegan options offered at all, you know, usually it's, you have to specially request it, or sometimes they'll say, oh, we have chicken or vegan pasta. And so, 
just small changes in the way that they're offering food, I think could be immensely impactful. And of course, you know, they can't cut the carbon footprint of flying, but they can cut the carbon footprint of the food that's served while flying. And so especially with the growth in people trying to offset their carbon footprint from flights, it would work perfectly. So actually, if anyone listening has any contacts at the airline industry, we would love that. Really, the way that we work is through warm introductions and through internal advocates. We found that we really don't get very far cold calling, but if there's, you know, someone respected who or someone who is a stakeholder, who's an employee or, you know, tied to the institution who can say, hey, I think this is a great um, initiative that's really in line with your sustainability goals. Can you take a call? That's when we really get somewhere. So we just have yet to make that type of contact within the airline industry. What a great way to end the interview. If somebody has that warm introduction, how can they reach you? Perfect. Yes. And yeah, I mean, not just airlines, but hospitals, corporations, um, universities, large catered events as well. We would love to talk with you. So you can email me at katie, K-A-T-I-E, at greenerbydefault.org. And you can also visit our website, greenerbydefault.org. It has a, an email sign up, but also a lot of resources and all of the behavioral science studies that our recommendations are based upon. Fantastic. Katie Cantrell, I want to thank you for joining us today on Food Forward, Nourishing the World. We will be back after this message. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. First off, I'd like to thank our guests. We had three just outstanding interviews. Sam Taylor from Long Table Pancakes, Frank Jackish from Ayana Bio, and Katie Cottrell from Greener by Default. Um, next week, we have, I think, a very, very special show dealing with food waste. So we have it from the consumer standpoint. We will have a representative from Lomi, which is a machine that I've talked about, but I'm going to save that for them to speak more about and an interview with a company called Flash Foods, which has a very interesting approach to uh, helping grocery stores, supermarkets, et cetera, uh, take advantage of reducing the spoilage that they need to throw away by charging less money for close to sell by date. But you know, let's save that for next week. Um, if you want to follow us, we haven't really talked about this in a couple couple weeks. If you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Facebook, X, TikTok, and Instagram at foodforwardradio.com. If you want to go to our website and give us some information, it is www.foodforwardradio.com. You can reach me, Alan, at foodforwardradio.com. So in the coming weeks, I think we have some interesting shows coming up, although I would absolutely love to hear from everybody else. 
as to whether they think these ideas are great ones, or maybe you have a topic that you'd like to have us investigate and get some guests, or maybe there was a topic that we covered that you would like us to kind of go back and look at again. So for example, um, we're going to be looking at kind of the mobile aspect of food with ghost kitchens and mobile kitchens, uh, like World Central Kitchen, farmers markets, food trends around the world. We're going to look at food delivery services and lots of other things. But again, I, I do want to hear from everybody else. And let me remind you again that I have a brand new book out called The Watchtower. Um, I've been getting some great feedback for it. You can find it at your local bookstore or you can ask for it if you don't find it on the shelf. You can also order it in digital or print form at amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, any other website. And if you're in another country, um, I'm sure that they have online service that you can use as well. So for my guests, for myself, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And remember, if you miss a show, it is available on demand through all of your favorite podcasts. So with that, until next week, eat hearty and eat healthy. I'm Alan Wiener. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.